This is Pastor William. On behalf of the members of Providence Baptist Church, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and thank you for joining us. It is our joy to share God's truth, and we trust that the preaching of God's Word will always bless His people. But we humbly remind you that no recording can ever replace biblical corporate worship or true Christian fellowship. So we encourage everyone everywhere to commit themselves to the service of God's kingdom in a local church. And we pray that the Lord keep and bless you as you continue to earnestly seek Him. Amen. Amen. Please be seated and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Now, many times we've mentioned that the purpose of the letter to the Hebrew believers of the first century is to exhort them to persevere in the faith and not to return to their former religious practices. This is, this is typical. This is what everybody does. Um, we have this temptation when, um, when we begin to follow the Lord. Uh, we are tempted by our flesh. We are tempted by, um, by our enemy. We are tempted by the whore of Babylon, by the false prophet. We are tempted to go back to what is comfortable, back to what we, what we know. Uh, and this would have been especially tempting for Hebrews, uh, first century Hebrews, because they knew that the, the temple, the Aaronic priesthood, uh, they knew that all of this was given to Israel by God. So they knew that, and they were comfortable with it. They had grown up in it. Uh, and it was tangible. It was physical. It was something they could do. And it didn't require the kind of hard effort that it takes to live out your life um, with all of your strength and with all of your heart and with all of your mind for God. And so they were tempted to return. And the author of Hebrews here is exhorting them to persevere in the faith because there's nothing to return to. It was all a shadow. It was all a sign pointing to the one Messiah that has come. So Hebrews chapter 7, verses 20 and 25, he con- or 20 through 25, he continues to make that argument. So let's hear the word of the Lord. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. <clears throat> now the first word here, the first word in verse 20 is very significant because the author is continuing an argument that he's already started. And that is that Jesus Christ is better than everything and that Jesus' priesthood is better than the priesthood of Aaron and his descendants. Jesus is superior to the angels because they were commanded to worship him. Jesus is superior to the prophets, including Moses, because Moses and the prophets, they were servants 
in the house of the Lord, where Jesus Christ is the Son. And then starting in chapter 5, the author began making a, the argument that Jesus is superior to Aaron in the entire Levitical priesthood. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, Jesus is qualified to be our high priest by virtue of his calling by God, his suffering, and his obedience. Then verses 9 and 10, Jesus is called, or God called him to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 6, the author runs a tangent in order to address the spiritual nature of his audience, the spiritual condition that they were in, which was, as you recall, dull of hearing. They had grown apathetic, and they weren't striving as they once had done. And then Hebrews chapter 7, the author returns to this argument that Jesus is a superior priest, by establishing the superior nature of the priestly order of Melchizedek. And he does this by comparing Melchizedek to Father Abraham. Now remember, Father Abraham is the indwelling or the the representative, the, the federal head of the entire nation of Israel. And he was the only one at the time. And so all of his descendants, Aaron and all of the priests, They descended from Abraham, and so they would have looked to him as their federal head, as their leader. And here um, we see Melchizedek, who there is no lineage, there is no history. He just comes up and he's pronounced the high, uh, he is pronounced a priest of the Most High God. He is pronounced the King of Righteousness and a King of Salem, a King of Peace. And he's pronounced that by God in God's word. And we see Abraham acknowledge that and give reverence and homage to this one who is a priest and a king. He he is looking forward, pointing to the Messiah. And so now when the author points back to Melchizedek and says, remember this guy. He was a priest and a king. And he was a priest before any of... Aaron and his descendants were priests. He was a priest of the Most High God before Moses was born and given the law. He was a priest of the Most High God before Abraham was called. And he says, this is the kind of priest that Christ is. So he continues in this chapter, verse 7, or verse 11. He says, the Levitical priesthood could not make one person perfect before God, could not make anyone or anything perfect before God. Therefore, the whole system was pointing to something else. In verse 12, the law upon which the Levitical priesthood was based has now been changed. And in his own words, Jesus, um, Jesus said that he didn't come simply to cancel the law, but he came to fulfill the law. He satisfied it. As he told John the Baptist, he satisfied it for righteousness' sake. And then verse 19, um, now Christ provides a better hope through which we draw nearer to God. And so as we come now to verse 20 of chapter 7, we see how the author continues to build this argument to firmly establish the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over Aaron and his descendants. And in verses uh, 20 through 25, we really see him addressing two main issues here. 
uh, two main reasons why the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the priesthood of the Levites. So let's take a closer look here. Um, first of all, Jesus's priesthood is superior because it is by divine appointment. It is a, by a divine oath. Verses 20, and it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. There are two essential points here about this divine appointment. One, um, how did Aaron and his descendants become priests? And then two, how did Jesus become a priest? So two questions here I want to address concerning these three verses. Um, and the point here is to show that Jesus was established as a priest to, compared to how the Levitical priests were established. Exodus 28.1 tells us, um, uh, or God is telling uh, Moses, bring, uh, bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. So the high priest after the after the order of Melchizedek, or excuse me, the high priest uh, after the order of Aaron were appointed by a command from God. <clears throat> God commands um, Abraham or commands Moses to set them up as priests. And until the system was thoroughly corrupted by men, yes, all of the high priests that followed. Aaron were appointed solely by their heredity. They inherited the role from their parent, from their father and their grandfathers. But how did Jesus become a high priest? The author of Hebrews answers that question by another appeal to Psalm 10 um, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, Brothers and sisters, I can't stress this enough. The, the, this, the importance of Melchizedek in a proper Christology. Now, what do I mean by Christology? You know, like biology or geology. It, those ologies means that it's a study of. So theology is, or theology is a study of theos, God. It's a study of God. Uh, Christology is a study of Christ, a study of the Messiah. Um, and I think that it is to have a, a real proper understanding of Christology and Christ in his role as a priest. Uh, you have to understand what is meant here uh, when speaking about Melchizedek. And this is the ninth time that the author has mentioned Melchizedek in reference to Jesus. We see it in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 7, we see it in verse 1, 10, 11, 15, 17, and now here again in verse 21. So again, I, I say you, I don't think you can have a proper understanding of Jesus as the Messiah without a proper understanding of this comparison that the author of Hebrews is making to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek was someone who lived about 2,000 years before Christ. So this was long before Jacob was born. 
which would, he would be named Israel, um, long before the nation of Israel was even, even existed. So it was well before Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Because remember, Jacob, remember Jacob, he was renamed Israel after wrestling with the Lord. Remember how much time happened between him and Moses. I mean, that whole time in, in Egypt, that whole 400 and something years spent, uh, span between those two. Um, and then Moses comes along and calls Aaron. So this was well before Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Um, so how is Melchizedek established as a priest of the God Most High? By God's word alone. There is no lineage, there is no heritage, there is no inheritance, no political positioning. There is nothing but the word of God that establishes him as a priest. And remember, Melchizedek was not simply a priest, or he was not only a priest, but he was also a king, a king of righteousness and a king of peace. Remember that we stress that there is no peace without, unless there is first righteousness. And there is no other man in Scripture, no other man in Scripture is recognized as a king and a priest. When you mix government and religion, nothing good happens. Eventually you get one man that's in charge of every aspect of your life. And usually, it's not very often that there's a David, a King David in, in the world. Not very often that there are men um, who are benevolent, truly benevolent, and, and take their position as king, uh, as a right representative of God um, concerning civil authority. That doesn't happen very often. This is the only time we see in Scripture, besides Christ, that a man is pronounced priest and king. It's significant. Uh, then about a thousand years later, so Melchizedek, 2,000 years before Christ. Then about a thousand years later, King David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes Psalm 110. Now there's some, you know, there's some argument as to exactly when in his life this psalm was written. But I don't know necessarily that that is significant. What is significant is that he wrote it. Everybody recognizes that, and he lived a thousand years after Melchizedek. And this psalm, Psalm 110, is a royal psalm, and it describes things that go well beyond any achievements of an earthly king. This psalm is recognized to point towards the promised Messiah. And it indicates that this promised Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not only would the promised Messiah be a king, but like Melchizedek, he would also be a priest. Now keep in mind, King David is writing this right in the middle of the Old Covenant. When King David was writing this psalm, there was a high priest in Jerusalem. Maybe it was Abiathar or Zadok. I don't I don't remember exactly which one it was, and it depends on when you think that uh, Psalm 110 was written. But the fact of the matter is, um, this psalm doesn't praise Abiathar. This psalm doesn't praise Zadok. This psalm doesn't praise any other high priest after the order of Aaron. 
This psalm doesn't reference the Levitical priesthood at all, in fact. This psalm is speaking about a priesthood that would eventually replace the Levitical priesthood. So now you understand why the author of Hebrews in verse 11 says, if the Levitical priesthood was capable of securing man's perfection and salvation, then why would God have promised another priesthood? Why would God have promised another priest after the order of Melchizedek if the priesthood after the order of Aaron was sufficient? Well, because it wasn't. Because God's plan was never for the Levitical priesthood to offer salvation, eternal salvation. It was always pointing to His Son. God's plan from the very beginning was about another priesthood. In Genesis 3, God promised to send us a Savior. Not a system, but a Savior. And the Levitical priesthood was never meant to secure man's salvation. It was always a sign pointing us to the one who would bring salvation. But I still haven't answered the question yet. We know how the Levites became priests and high priests, but I still haven't answered the question, how did Jesus become a high priest um, compared to how the Levites became high priests? Well, we know that Aaron and his descendants became priests by command of God. Um, Exodus 28 tells us that. Exodus 29, verse 9, also tells us that their priesthood um, was their priesthood was established by an ordinance uh, of God. But here, the author of Hebrews, referring again to Psalm 110, shows that Jesus Christ became a high priest by an oath from God. In the case of the Levitical priest, God commanded Moses to make them priests. But in the case of Jesus, God himself says that he would make him the priest. Remember, an oath is is like a promise. Uh, We'll eventually get to this in our study of the confession concerning oaths and vows. But an oath is like a promise. A promise is just something you tell somebody, you know, to try to make them understand how certain you are. You affirm to them the certainty of your words when you give a promise. Um, A vow is a promise that you make to God. But an oath is a promise that you make to someone else, but you call upon God to be a witness to the validity of your words, to the truth of what you are saying. And so this is what God is doing. He is establishing this this secure well, I mean his word is is secure period end of story but there's no higher being for god to call upon to be a witness to him and the truth of his word so he calls upon himself to be a witness to the truth of his word so one group is called by a divine command but they were all shadows pointing to the one who was promised from the beginning. Hebrews 6:17 says, "So when God desired to show much more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath." God is trying to stress the immutability, the unchangeableness 
of God's word. This is not the way you and I try to stress when we make a promise and we repeat ourselves and we call upon everything because we're trying to make the other person understand the sincerity. Maybe we're trying to convince ourselves. Uh, But God's word is entirely for our benefit to show the unchangeable nature of that. And we see that in history, that the promises that God gave to Israel the promises were fulfilled. He was always warning them. of the, He was always promising them those two things. Remember, we've spoken about these a number of times. Always promising that um, rebellion will be punished. But, you know, you humble yourself. Be humble before God and repent. And that would be rewarded. And we see that over and over again. It's fulfilled. Those promises ring true throughout the history of Israel. <clears throat> So this is the difference. One was made a priest by a command. One was made priest by a promise, by an oath. So what was God's purpose in confirming Jesus as high priest with an oath? Verse 22 tells us. It tells us so that Jesus is now the guarantor of a better covenant. This word, guarantor, this is... Uh, the only place in the New Testament that this Greek word appears, and guas, I believe, is the word. Uh, it refers to uh, the one who makes uh, makes sure, uh, like somebody who cosigns on a loan for you, or uh, somebody who's a bondsman, a, a bail. You know, they post bail for someone. They're they're the ones who are m- giving a surety of uh, of some contract or some agreement. So Jesus himself is the guarantee of the new covenant. Because, and, and because God appointed him by such an oath, then Jesus guarantees that the new covenant is a better covenant. Under the old covenant, under the old covenant, remember they had Moses to act as their mediator. But Moses could never guarantee the covenant because he himself was a sinful man. Remember, uh, the author mentions this, that they are, these high priests have to give, um, they have to make sacrifices for their own sin before they can even mediate for the nation, for the people of Israel. And, and, and this is what Moses had to do. This is what Aaron had to do. So, and in, in fact, there was no one There was no one who could guarantee the people would keep their side of the old covenant. But the new covenant, the better covenant, it doesn't depend upon what we do. It depends upon what Jesus did. So under the new covenant, Jesus is the guarantee on our behalf. He's the one that guarantees that when we approach the throne of God, we are righteous because he has removed our sin. Moses couldn't do that. Aaron couldn't do that. None of the Levitical priests could approach the throne of God righteous because they had sin of their own. Jesus had no sin, so we see that he's able to approach on our behalf righteous so that's why it's so important the language that paul uses that we are in christ that we are in christ because outside of christ we have no righteousness 
Outside of Christ, our righteousness is as filthy rags. So first we see that Jesus' priesthood is superior because it is by a divine appointment given by oath. Not just a command that was given to man to make this one man to make these other men priests. But it was a divine oath, a divine calling by God. And next, the author argues that Jesus' priesthood is superior because it is an eternal ministry. It is an eternal ministry. Uh, Verses 23 through 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So again, I want to make two points here. Two points in this passage. First, compare. First, you see the author comparing the duration of these two different kinds of priesthood. Essentially, you had the priesthood after the order of Aaron, and you have the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Abraham, Moses, Aaron, and all the prophets and priests that came after them, they were all guilty of sin. So, they were powerless in the face of death. When the angel of death came calling upon them, they were powerless to stand against him. So, by necessity, there had to be a lot of them. They had to keep replacing each other. The priesthood of the Levites was temporary in nature. But they still served their purpose. And their purpose was to point us to Christ, to point the Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, to point them to the promised Messiah. But the second person of the Trinity came into this world with an entirely different purpose. He didn't come into this world to point us to anybody. He came in this world to accomplish our salvation. The the priest after the order of of Aaron, they came and they pointed us to the one who would bring salvation. But the priest after the order of Melchizedek, he came and brought us salvation. Jesus of Nazareth did what no other man could do. He lived a perfect life as the image bearer of God in this fallen creation. And then he gave up his life on the cross to make atonement for his people, to reconcile us to God. And now, by the power of God, Jesus has taken up his life again to serve forever as our king and high priest. Jesus was not guilty of any sin. Therefore, when the angel of death came to him, the angel of death was powerless in the face of this Savior King. History records, history records, tradition, Jewish tradition records the names of all the high priests who served in Israel and when they lived in a general comment about their life maybe certainly it tells us who they descended from what their lineage was but the final word on all of those men was the same he died end of story but scripture tells us that our redeemer lives jesus christ lives so what purpose does an eternal priesthood have what purpose could this serve verse 25 addresses that question. 
What purpose does an eternal priesthood serve? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now remember, unlike the Levitical priest, Jesus doesn't serve for himself. He doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself first before he can approach the Lord. Therefore, his atonement, his work and as a priest is entirely for our benefit. He is the permanent mediator between a holy God and sinful men. And because he is fully God and fully man, then he is perfectly capable of representing both parties in that mediation. He does not sacrifice or does not diminish the justice of God in order to get some of us through. No, he perfectly fulfills and upholds the righteous justice of God. But he gets us saved nonetheless because of his perfect mercy and compassion towards us. So therefore, Scripture says that he is able to save to the uttermost. To the uttermost, entirely, completely, perfectly. He serves for, because he serves forever. He never he will never die. He will never sleep. He never takes a moment of rest. He never gets exasperated with us. He stands before God without ceasing, interceding on your behalf. And he saves perfectly. <clears throat> and his permanence gives us assurance. His permanence in that position, it, 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 it gives us assurance. It strengthens our assurance. This is why sound theology is so very important. Knowing who Jesus is, knowing what Jesus has done, knowing why he did it, and what that means for us, what that means for how we live now, and the promises of living forever, knowing and understanding these things is how we gain that strong assurance. And knowing and understanding these things confirms the words of Jesus when he says, no man comes to the Father except through me. When you understand who the Messiah was, what he did, why he did it, then you understand, yes, nobody comes to the Father but through me. There is no other means of salvation. There is no other activist that can stand before a holy God and plead your case. Every single man, woman, and child, every single fallen angel, every single uh, righteous angel, every creature of God throughout all of creation could stand before the throne and plead your case before God. But without Jesus Christ as your advocate, you are doomed. This is what he has done and this is why. Because he's the one appointed by God by an oath to be the only way. To be the priest. To stand and do what no other man could do. This is, what, this is why I say it all the time and this is why the, the author of Hebrews is making this point. It's all about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and did what Adam could not do which was to be a perfect representation of God in this physical creation. Adam couldn't do it. No man after Adam could do it. He was supposed to take dominion. What, is that? what does a king do? He takes dominion. He rules. He reigns. 
If he's righteous, then he would do it for the benefit of his kingdom and not for his own benefit, not to serve himself. No man could do that until Christ, until Jesus of Nazareth. He perfectly represented God. He took dominion over everything that God brought into his realm, into his realm of influence. He took dominion over it. And he perfectly represented God and loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. In every step of his life, every moment of his life, that's what he was doing. And then you get this this priesthood that follows after Abraham and Moses and Jacob. This priesthood that's supposed to be representing the people to God. They're supposed to be the advocates, the mediators. None of them could do it because they were all sinful men. They all failed to perfectly represent God. Uh, to be a perfect representative before God for mankind because of their own sinfulness. And then comes the Messiah. Then there's Jesus of Nazareth who does that perfectly. So when this is what we were supposed to do. Turn to physical creation and represent God and declare the glories of God and then turn and face God and plead for the case of creation. Praise Him for creation. We were supposed to stand in that gap. We couldn't do it. Christ does it perfectly. So, when He represents God to creation, He does it perfectly. When He speaks God's Word to uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and now, by God's blessed Word to us, He speaks it perfectly. He perfectly represents God in this creation. And then when He turns to God in prayer for us, He does it perfectly. We see it in the high priestly prayer of Christ. We see Christ plead perfectly in the Garden of Gethsemane. He does what we were not able to do, what we are not able to do, which is why we need Him. So we read the law, and yes, it beats up on us, but that's not its purpose. The discipline of the Lord is not to harm. It is to grow. So we read the law and we see that we cannot do it. And it should drive us to the cross. It should drive us to Christ. It should drive us to that promised Messiah because He is the only way. That's what the author is telling the Hebrews of the first century Roman Empire. You cannot go back to the Levitical priest because it was just a shadow. There's no substance there. Christ is now the substance of that. You must persevere. And now, we don't have a Levitical priesthood to go back to. None of us came back from that. And I don't know of anybody that's tempted to go back to the Catholic priesthood. But it happens. But it's all a, it's all a shadow pointing to God. Me, standing up here, I am a shadow. Christ is the substance. He is the only way of salvation. So turn to Him for that very purpose, let us pray.